The scripture passage this morning is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. It may be found in your pew Bible on page 826. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is God's word. Who is Jesus? Rock star and philanthropist Monos says, So I ask myself a question a lot of people have asked. Who is this man? Do we see who he said he was? Or was he just a religious nut? And there it is. And that's the question. People answer that question in a variety of ways. Thomas Jefferson wrote about taking a razor blade to the Bible to cut out the parts of the New Testament that he did not like. He ended up with 46 pages of what he called the most and benevolent to man. You don't like about Jesus and you come up with a great moral teacher. And this view was popular in the mid-19th century by a book written by Ernest Renan. Again, he concludes that Jesus is not the son of God, but he is among the greatest teachers we have ever had. More recently, the Jesus Seminar has taken colored pens to the Gospels to highlight what Jesus may really have said and what he no way 
it could have said that or that would have happened to him. And then they have grades in between, maybe, most likely, uh, not very possible. And that's what we have to do to the Bible to get a Jesus that is conducive to our culture. A renowned atheist, Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book, The God Delusion, been so popular on college campuses, concludes, Jesus was a great moral teacher. And he goes a little further. Somebody as intelligent as Jesus would have if he had known what we know today. Fabrications that are not dealing with the scripture. Rabbi Duncan, a century scholar, um, with the nickname Rabbi because of his ministry to, to the Jews, looked at the uncensored Bible and he said, Christ either deceived humankind by a conscious fraud or himself was deluded or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. Trilemma been popularized by C.S. Lewis, uh, diagrammed by Josh McDowell, included in countless Christian books and preached from countless Christian pulpits. The trilemma, if you deal with the Jesus of Scripture, you have to draw one of three conclusions. He is a liar who has deluded the people. He is a lunatic who is self-deceived or... He is truly the Lord he claims to be. And that is what today's passage confronts us with. The Jesus who truly is. And there is no getting around this passage in Jesus' claims about himself. It is written in all four Gospels. It is attested to by eyewitnesses with various details. In fact, any story of the life of Jesus falls apart if this story is not included. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And I ask each of us today to listen to and be confronted by the Jesus that confronted Jerusalem that day. Do not excise pages or teachings of the scripture that Jesus has given about himself, but truly deal with Jesus Christ and live with the choice that he is a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is indeed the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Our Father, illumine this passage. Bring it alive to us today. Help us to, to stand in the shoes of, of the sandals of the, the first century Galileans and Judeans who had this experience. Let us feel his presence as he presented himself and as he marched into the temple. Lord, your spirit is the one who makes this real. It is your spirit who confirms and says in the depths of our hearts, this is true. Speak to us today. Use your
your word. In Christ we pray, amen. There is no getting around this passage. Matthew has written his book to Jews to show them who Jesus claimed to be and who he really is. And put yourself in the sandals of a first century Jew. You've been brought up if you've heard anything about Jesus, and most likely you have at this point. You've been told that he was a false Messiah, a deluded man, uh, a one born out of adultery. And it's your religious teachers who have been teaching this as you've grown up. And so Matthew has to, it's writing to people who have, are predisposed to see Jesus as a fraud. And so he tries to bring them the real Jesus. And so that's why he begins the book with a genealogy that goes not back, not to Adam, but to Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jews. A genealogy that highlights David because Jesus comes as the king that David had been pointing to, that God had been pointing to. He continues as he includes the story of the magi, the shepherds. Because in the story, he is showing the Jews that right at the very beginning, when Jesus was born, Gentile rulers recognized and traveled great distance to honor Jesus as the king of the Jews. And yet the religious leaders, those, those very similar to the ones that have been teaching you, could point the Magi to precisely where Messiah would be born, where this king is born, yet they would not go down and travel a handful of miles to check out the evidence. And Matthew is trying to say that the teaching you have received has been from those who predetermined the evidence, postulated that Jesus is not the one. And it shows throughout the book they were never open to the evidence about Jesus himself. And so Matthew quotes scripture after scripture, applying it to Jesus to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God had intended Messiah to be. And many of these scriptures you've seen are not ones you would have chosen prophecies to Jesus, but Matthew applies the greater meaning of fulfill to filling full, that Jesus fills full these scriptures because he is indeed come to be not only a second Adam, but second Israel. And just like Jesus, Adam had failed and Jesus succeeds so that he can redeem us, where Israel has failed, Jesus succeeds so he can redeem Israel. That's why this verse that's applied to, uh, to Israel speaks of Israel. Out of Egypt did I call my son. And when it's speaking of the Exodus, he applies it to Jesus. Jesus is my true son 
and fulfills what this son was meant to be and what Israel was meant to be. The light to the world to draw people to God. And Matthew continues in, in Ma- Matthew 16, you see the clear declaration by Peter and the disciples. Who is this man? And tell him what, what, what the culture is saying about him. And he asks him, what do you say about me? He, Peter declares, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And yet Jesus continues to veil this truth from many. We saw it when he descended from the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples are all excited, those three disciples, about what they'd seen. And Jesus says, tell no one what you've seen until I've been raised from the dead. Well, now, this day, Matthew has built the book to crescendo on this day that Jesus is revealed. The veil is completely taken off. Everything in this passage cries out the identity of Jesus Christ. We cannot get around it. So, we read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs it, and he will send them at once. Do you see that this day is predetermined? Jesus has already set it up. This wasn't an event where Jesus just happens to be going to Jerusalem and finds a donkey and he wants to ride it and all of a sudden the people start to get these delusions about Jesus. Jesus has predetermined this. You go and tell him, if he asks, the Lord has need of it. And who is this Lord that has need of it? It's possible that it's a reference to God himself. It is the Lord. And it could be said that God himself has need of that donkey this day because God is making a a proclamation about Jesus. He is fulfilling what Daniel spoke of 600 years earlier. The day when the Messiah would be announced. Or even if it's a reference to Jesus, imagine calling yourself the Lord. What hubris that takes unless you are the Lord. But it's predetermined. As Paul would say about all that takes place, you know, O king, this was not done in a corner. In fact, this is done out in the open in the greatest time in history when the most people are going to be in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't want to hide his identity. He wants us all to understand who he is. And it's interesting at what point he sends the disciples to get the donkey. It's when they are on the Mount of Olives. You see, because it's at a certain point at the Mount of Olives where all pilgrims get off any horses or animals that they are riding. 
because the Mount of Olives overlooks the temple. And when you get to a certain point, you are about to view the temple and there is such incredible reverence for the temple that people will get off their horses and they will walk the rest of the way and sometimes even crawl. Dr. Hugenberger from Park Street brings this out very well. But Jesus chooses that exact moment to get on his ride. He's not hiding who he is. He is declaring, I can ride into the temple. He is declaring, not that he has no reverence for the temple. He is declaring he is greater than the temple. And God himself is announcing this. He prophesied 500 years earlier of this day in the book of Zechariah. He gives them what they should be looking for to see who Messiah is. It's me going to uh, pick up someone at the airport who's never met me before. So I will say, okay, look for me. I'm 6'3", so and in other places. I'm 62, but I look about 40. I'll have a, a blue, the black shirt, khakis on, and some gray hair, a little bit of gray hair. Okay, I've identified so they know they're looking, oh, there's the guy. Not quite what he described himself to be, but... Zechariah has said, your king will come humble mounted on the colt of a donkey. So Jesus comes mounted on the colt of a donkey. This isn't a delusion of Jesus himself. It is God's stamp, God's mark on who this man is. Even the choice of an animal that God shows him to ride in on declares two things about this man. It declares he is humble. The passage even says it. He is humble. He is different from the all-conquering king you anticipate, you expect, you are looking for. He comes humble. As we'll see, he comes humble as the one who comes as the suffering servant who fulfills... All of the passion of Isaiah 53, for he comes as Savior. But it also screams his authority as king. When David is about to die, he is going to transfer the throne to Bathsheba. Well, he receives word that Another son, Adonijah, is in the process of usurping the throne. So he calls his leaders, I am going to send Solomon to Gihon to be anointed as king. I am going to cry out that Solomon is king. So mount him on my mule, on my beast of burden. Why? Well, we see that it was 
common during this time that riding in on a donkey or a beast of burden said, this is my city, this belongs to me. Gordon Huber Berger brings this out as well. He cites a, uh, a fairly recent discovery of a prefect, a palace prefect, who wrote a letter to the king, a returning king, a king who'd been away quite a while, and the city was, had been disrupted. There were th- those who were trying to uh, gain control of the city. And so he tells the king, King Zimron, he says, he recommends, my lord should not ride on a horse. Come in on a donkey and he will thereby honor his royal head. What it's saying is, don't come in on a horse as though you need to conquer this city. Come in on a donkey showing your security that you have as king. And Hugerberger likens it to, if you want to claim a town, you ride in on a stretch limo. You're saying, I'm not needing to get away fast, right? This is who I am. And so as Jesus rides in on a donkey, he is declaring his authority. He is secure in his place as king of the Jews. And of course, true humility grows out of great security. Jesus knew who he was. He didn't need to impress anyone. He simply wanted to declare it, and he did. And we see Jesus' declaration of his identity in everything that the pilgrims do as they see Jesus. They take off their cloaks and they lay them before them like one would unravel a red carpet for a king or a dignitary. In fact, it shows their submission to him. What I am, as represented in the cloaks, is laid out before you. It's shown in the waving of the palms. For palms are very symbolic of the nation of Israel. Uh, Images of palms were on the coins. They were all over the synagogues. And the waving of them spoke of victory. It's exactly what happened when Simon Maccabees retakes Jerusalem in the temple. The people are waving palms. Uh, Two World Cups ago, Karen and I were in Mexico. They get excited about the World Cup. So we're on this uh, double-deck bus sitting on the top, and all of a sudden, the traffic comes to a, a screeching halt, and there are hordes and hordes of people out in the streets waving Mexican flags. And I turned to Karen and said, they just won their World Cup match. The irony was they had lost, but like America this year, they had just gotten in. So they were victorious. They had gotten into the next round. But it is the waving of the national flag that cries out the celebration of great victory. And whether the pilgrims fully understood it or if it was God's, merely God's intended meaning, these actions cry out that Jesus is the victorious king. 
They are hoping for a victory over Rome. Jesus comes to bring them a greater victory over sin. Again, something that is the word Hosanna is pregnant with. Because the word Hosanna means save now. And again, they, the people could have been crying it out simply like we cry out hallelujah, sometimes not even knowing its meaning. But God knows its meaning. Jesus comes to save. The declaration, son of David, that is an appellation of the Messiah. Son of David, God had promised David that one, one from his family would rule forever. That's Messiah. They are crying out, Messiah, to Jesus. I hope you see, you can't mistake who Jesus is claiming to be. You can't cut out enough to deny he is. And we see the reaction in Jerusalem. It says, in the city, all of Jerusalem stirred up. The word stirred up is weak right here. It's a word that's used of earthquakes. So think of an earthquake shaking Jerusalem. And that's what's happening. And so the people of Jerusalem say, who is this? And they're not asking you know, who is Jesus claiming to be here? They're asking the other question. This guy who is riding in is proclaiming himself and you're crying out that he's Messiah. Who is he? He is Jesus of Nazareth, the one we've seen as a prophet. Everything in this story is premeditated. It's Jesus chooses the moment on the Mount of Olives. God had predicted it. He chooses the beast to ride on that declares it. The people shout it out. The reaction of Jerusalem is shaken by it. And Jesus goes one step further in fulfilling the expectations of what Messiah would do. For it's anticipated that Messiah would cleanse the temple. Malachi chapter 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He comes into the temple to cleanse. Something that, again, Simon Maccabees did that celebrated in, in Hanukkah. Simon Maccabees returned, brought victory, and went into the temple that had been defiled in every way by the Hitler-like Antiochus Epiphanes. And he went in and he, he cast out the pigs that had been brought in to be sacrificed. He broke down the idols. He cleansed it of everything that was foreign. And so Jesus comes now to cleanse the temple, not from Gentiles, but from the very ones to whom it was entrusted. I, what I want to say is what Jesus is saying here today. 
There is no getting around who Jesus is and his claim to authority. We may not like to be confronted by the fact that Jesus has come as king to rule over our lives. When my brother died of a motorcycle in a motorcycle accident after the funeral, I was riding back to my apartment with a roommate. And he said, you know, Bruce, at times like this, I really doubt that there's a God. And I thought about that for a second. I wasn't a believer at the time. But I said, you know, I think the same way. I really question the existence of God. But when I really get honest with myself, I'm questioning the existence of God not because of the evidence. I'm questioning it because I don't want there to be a God. Because if there is a God, I'm accountable to him. And I think that's what happens with Jesus Christ. If we believe in the Jesus of Scripture, we are accountable to him as our king. But we don't want to be accountable, so we change the picture of Jesus, as you've seen done throughout the centuries. In this passage, Jesus claims an identity as the Messiah. He also fulfills his mission or claims or shows us his mission, the mission of the Messiah to cleanse. And so as he enters into this temple, we read. As Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple... He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What had been happening in the temple was around 30 AD, Caiaphas had introduced uh, a marketplace into the temple. There were marketplaces around where people could buy the animals or trade in their money to have the right coinage in the temple. But Caiaphas wanted to make a few extra dollars, so he brought that in the temple area itself. And Jesus is saying that you are twisting and perverting what the temple was meant to be. It was meant to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, He's not referencing, Jesus is not referencing that there's a lot of robbers in there and the money changers are cheating you and that what he's referencing is they're a den of robbers. He's not saying this is where robbery is taking place. He's saying this is the den of robbers. The den is not where people, where robbers rob. The den is where the robbers go back to find their security. It's the place where where they're finally at peace and at rest, uh, unable to be captured. And, and what Jesus is saying here is it's a reference to a Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 7, he's pointing out that the religious leaders are using the temple as a den of robbers. Listen to his words. 
Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, the religious people, the Jews are coming to the temple and saying, because I come to the temple, I'm good with God. And we go, they go on living any way they want, but then they come back to the temple and say, see, I'm in the temple, I'm doing what you're supposed to do in the temple. I'm good with God. The temple was the thin veneer of spirituality, which underneath it, had debauchery and sin. Sometimes we, we see it today. People come to church on Sunday. They worship God. They go away and they live the rest of their lives exactly as they want to live it. But I'm religious. I'm a good religious person because I go to church every Sunday. That's what's happening here. They're getting their security with God out of their religious activity in the temple. They're getting their spiritual identity from the temple, not from a living relationship with God. And Jesus very specifically outs what's happening among the religious leaders in a couple chapters. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. See what it's saying is, You pretend to give people access to God, but you are keeping them from access by the way you're using the temple and by teaching the legalistic, nitpicky teaching that you bring to them. Jesus is overturning all of that because he says you are not fulfilling, you are keeping the temple from being fulfilled for what it was meant to be. It was meant to be a house of prayer. Now I believe this description is bigger than this is a place for people to come praying to. Because the essence of prayer is an intimate relationship with God. Prayer isn't simply about bringing a list before God. It is about bringing yourself to God. It is about seeing God for who he is and seeing yourself for who you are. Confessing those sins. Praising him and thanking him as you look at everything he has done and is. And you're Our requests to God are simply a part of a relationship of a child coming to a loving parent. Not as a child who only speaks to a parent when they want something. But of one who is constantly in communion with God. 
and then makes his request. For we see in the temple, it was the place that gave access to God. For the God, the Shekinah glory of God was to reside in the Holy of the Holies. To enter, so we, people could enter in, sacrifice could be made that be brought before God so there'd be forgiveness so people are restored to God. That's the meaning of the temple. And Jesus comes and turns over the tables. And by the way, when he does this act, this is one of those things that, those acts that uh, Thomas Jefferson would cut out of the Bible. It doesn't fit with the kind, quiet, all-loving Jesus that we want to think about. But in reality, this is a very kind, humble, loving Jesus who does this. For it is an incredible, loving act to enter into people's lives and turn over the tables. If you were a king coming back to your city and you've discovered that robbers had taken it over, and so now you search out the den of robbers and you go into that den of robbers. What are you going to do? You are going to clean them out. If you love your city, you clean it out. Jesus has a righteous anger that wants people, everyone, to have access to God. And so he not only overturns the table, but he fulfills what the temple was meant to be. Because some blind and lame men come to Jesus at the temple. You see, they weren't allowed to be a part of all that is happening in the temple. They were declared unclean. They were looked down upon. There was no part for them in all of what's happening in the temple. But these hear that Jesus is there. And they truly have a picture of a loving Jesus. And they enter into the temple to Jesus. And Jesus heals them, thereby cleansing them and giving them the access to God, which the temple was meant to do. And I think there is a message to to all who feel like there's no way God would accept me. That I am so unclean. I'm unacceptable. I've done so much bad, so many sins. I'm unacceptable. And Jesus is glaring, no, you're not. I bring healing. I bring wholeness. I bring you access to God through my death on the cross. And that's what we see, that this work with the unclean anticipates Jesus' death. Because when Jesus dies, Matthew says, the veil of the temple, the veil that kept people from the presence of God, that which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, was torn from top to bottom as though the hand of God had torn this curtain open so everyone could have access to God. That's what the death of Jesus Christ does. He takes our sin. He removes it. So we could have a relationship with God. The unclean become clean. The broken become whole. If Jesus comes into our lives, he comes in to turn the tables upside down. 
we accept Jesus as king here? Do we let him come in and confront us in our sin and how we, through our image of God as the church, keep people from God, from believing in him? Do we realize Jesus is so loving? He wants to confront all of our sin. And he dies for it. And he wants to restore us to what we were meant to be. We were created in the image of God. The scripture says the believer is the holy temple of God. We are. Incredible what God has made us to be. And he's not going to stop. He's going to continue to turn things upside down in our lives so we can become the people we were created to be. And we need to think, too, as as a church, is what we do moved by wanting to give people access to God, or is it to get more people in the church? Is it to take away barriers that might be here because people will make uh, predeterminations about who this Jesus is, false decisions about Christ by simply things they see or the people they meet within the church? Or do we clear all of that clutter out of the way by being the presence of Christ in our love to them, by declaring the word of God and worshiping our God, not based on what's the most popular, but what best presents God to us each Sunday. And I believe this church strives to do that. And I am so grateful to be a part of it. So, when Jesus does this, the little children pick up the chance of the adults. We read, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus says, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? You see what the religious leaders are doing. They're trying to cut out pages of Jesus' life. They're trying to silence the children who were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, stop it. Stop them from saying this. They're doing precisely what so many people do today. Don't claim to be king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus' response to them is his same response to that attitude today. Have you not heard what God himself said? And there's two messages in what he says. First of all, I am more than the son of David. I am God. Because he said, this is a, refer- is a reference to the praise of God. And he is saying, I am worthy of the same praise that God gets. Anything they want to cut out, Jesus is pasting back in, in bold letters. And the second message in that is the children see it. 
You see, the children come in much more objectively than you do. They don't have a predisposition against me. They cry out what they see. They believe what they see. You have come predetermined against me. You know, eventually, these religious leaders will come back to the trilemma. They've tried to do away with it by saying, no, Jesus, you're really not saying this, are you? Didn't work. Jesus says, yes, I am. And so then they have a choice. He's liar, lunatic, or Lord. Many of them claim he's a liar. He's a false prophet, a false messiah. Crucify him. Others claim he's a lunatic. One passage talks about people asking, is he out of his mind? Some people say, yeah, he must have lost his mind with these delusions of grandeur. Others go to the extent of saying he has a demon. He's demon-possessed. That's the only way we can explain the claims he has. Those are all responses in the Bible. You see, liar, Lord, liar, lunatic Lord was there long before Rabbi Duncan. <laughs> They're in the Bible. So they make those conclusions. The one thing they will never conclude is that he is Lord. They will not because he would change their lives. This morning, join the cries of the children. Cry out, he is the son of David. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Join them and cry out, Hosanna. He has come to save. He has come to save us from the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin. Let him into the temple of our lives as king. Let him rule. Let him change what he wants to change so that we become the image of God that we were meant to be. We are so grateful for being so clear. I trust that your spirit will bring to remembrance the right times, the right moments, what they've heard today, what Jerusalem heard 2,000 years ago. Open the eyes of our hearts to you, Lord. Open our hearts to the work that you wish to do. Lord, make this a church that gives full access to everyone. Access to God. Let us tear down any barriers, any false images of Christ and present him for who he is. Amen.